Grace Point family. It is good to be in the house of the Lord. Certainly, God's presence is in this place. Uh, and I'm just praying I have enough voice left to preach after that time in worship. Amen. Praise God for what he's doing uh, in our midst. We're jumping into a, a new series today. I'm just going to pray before we jump into it. Heavenly Father, we thank you today for your word. We thank you that it is living and powerful. So, Lord, as we approach your word today, we do so reverently. We do so expectantly, Lord God, believing that you desire to speak to your people. Lord, we don't want to leave here the same way. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, you would do something in this moment that would change our perspective, would change our thinking, that it would conform us to be more and more like Jesus Christ. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It was spring of uh, 1996 that I had the opportunity uh, to travel through the country of Japan. I was part of a, a missions team with Youth with a Mission, and uh, we were traveling to, to many different cities uh, throughout Japan. We had just come from Osaka and took a very long bus ride into the city of Hiroshima. And uh, I remember we got there, and we got settled at the church that we were going to be staying at. And me and three of my friends, we had been on a bus for like 10 hours, and we just wanted to get out and stretch our legs. And so we began to walk. We went out on the streets there in Hiroshima, and we began walking down the main strip there, and we got to this park. And I know there's times in our in our lives where we, we sense uh, heaviness, anybody, right? Or uh, I, I just, there's something going on that we couldn't explain what it was, but I remember standing there in that park, and all of a sudden I felt such deep sorrow that I began to cry. I looked at my friend standing next to me, and all of us had tears rolling down our faces. And it was one of those moments where you're like, what in the world is going on right now? We stepped up into the park, and right in the middle of that park, there was a flame, a fire that was burning. And it was a memorial to the victims of the bombing there in Hiroshima. We were right there at the center of where the bomb had dropped all those years earlier. We spent much of the next couple weeks there in Hiroshima as a team walking through that park and, and just praying, praying that God would, would lift that, that heaviness, that God would give us opportunity to speak to people, and he opened so many opportunities, and what God did was, was amazing. But I always think of that moment because, for me, it was one of those moments in my life where God kind of peeled back the curtain, if you will, to allow me to get a glimpse of what the Apostle Paul refers to as the heavenly places. That phrase, heavenly places or heavenly realms, it's used five times in the book of Ephesians, five times in 1 Corinthians, 19 times total in the New Testament. It's translated from the Greek word, eporanios, and the meaning is this. If you're following along on the notes, write this down. It means the sphere of spiritual activity. It's dealing with the divine or the spiritual realm. Ephesians 1.20 says that God worked in Christ when he, he raised him from the dead and he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Ephesians chapter 6 is kind of the go-to passage on spiritual warfare, right? It talks about the evil forces that are in this same realm. Verse 12 says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. 
if we're honest today, as, as flesh and blood human beings, we have very little understanding of the heavenly places, this spiritual realm so often. We, we generally cannot see it or hear it or touch it. Sometimes we, we sense, right, there, there's something going on behind the scenes. And yet when we read the Word of God, the Word of God assumes the spiritual realm, okay? There are times for all of us, though, when, when God in His mercy kind of pulls back the curtains. Times when we can see evil so blatant, so powerful that we know it is a spiritual attack. As New Yorkers, September 11th was one of those days for us, wasn't it? 8.46 a.m., American Flight 11 from Boston crashed into the north tower of the World Trade Center. Those that were looking at it were stunned. All of a sudden, all of the nation's media attention focused in on New York City. And then at 9.03 a.m., how many of you remember where you were? When that second plane hit the tower, the South Tower. And it became so apparent in that moment that we were not just facing an awful tragedy. We were witnessing evil at work. We were looking evil straight in the face. But I want to tell you, for us, it doesn't end there, does it? If, we, if our eyes are open to what's going on around us, we can see evil on the streets of New York City anytime, right? We can see the overt evils and the, the drug pushers and the pimps. It's not hard to spot the displays of pornography or the ads of, of Times Square that lure people to believe the lies of materialism or unrestrained sensuality. But we make a mistake when we think that evil only shows up in those ways. Because frequently evil hides behind the facade of good. Paul tells us that even Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light. There is that individual, this individual that uses the church structure not to save and not to heal the broken, but rather to build up a personal power base. There's a parent who praises God loudly on a Sunday morning, but abuses a son or daughter at home, and sometimes even justifies that brutality with quoting scripture. There's that woman who's so careful about her public image to be prim and proper and say the right things as to appear to be submitted to Christ, but in the back scenes, right? In those, those dark places, there are words that are spoken, hate-filled gossip and selfish words spoken. When we talk about evil, we understand sometimes it can be loud and blatant, but sometimes it's lurking in the shadows, right? And so as we continue our discipleship journey, we're still on this journey together as a church. We're going to jump into a topic for the next four weeks that we cannot avoid. It's the topic of spiritual warfare. Now, I'm kind of reluctant to even bring up that phrase, spiritual warfare, because I know when I present on a topic like this, it requires me to walk a very narrow road of truth that has a ditch on both sides. On one side is the ditch of silly superstitions, right, incantations, all of these deliverance strategies that aren't found anywhere in Scripture. On that side, there's this fascination with casting out demons and devils from every single place. And that ditch, every stub toe and every flat tire is a work of the demon, right? We've got to cast that thing out. But on the other side is the ditch of skepticism, which is just as dangerous, where people are deceived by intellectual ideas and completely ignore the spiritual realm. Throughout church history, there have been those that have, have tried to ignore the devil's existence, 
and others who try to exaggerate his influence. C.S. Lewis says it this way, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Now, despite the ditches on both sides, the Despite the possibility, maybe of some misunderstandings, I, I strongly believe it's our responsibility as the church to teach on the battle that's taking place in the heavenly realms. Because the battle in the heavenly realms, according to Scripture, is just as real as a battle taking place in the earthly realms. Truth be told, we're actually going to spend more of our lives living in the heavenly places, right? Our earthly existence is a vapor that appears for a little while and then it's gone. Spiritual battles, spiritual battles have eternal consequences. The physical battles around us can can feel so intense, but the results are actually temporary. Let me say that again. Spiritual battles have eternal consequences. When we live our earthly lives, recognizing the unseen realm, we will be much more careful about what we do and what we say be much more careful to utilize the weapons that God has given to us. The weapons of prayer, the armor of God, knowing that the real battles are fought and won in the heavenly places. Now, I know as I navigate this narrow road, okay, that questions are going to come up, and and I want to be able to answer those questions as they come up, okay? And so here's what I want you to do. As we walk through this series, if a question comes to your mind, write it down, okay? And then message us, either on Instagram or Facebook, message us. And I'm going to do my best over these next four weeks uh, to answer uh, some of your questions, okay? Uh, As we talk about the battle taking place in the heavenly places, understand this first of all, that God has placed at our disposal adequate weapons for the battle. Can you believe that today? He's given us the weapons that we need, and he promises this, that we're not going to fight the battle alone. It's important that we not be fooled, church, into believing that our faith is somehow inadequate to fight the battles before us in our modern world, right? Genuine Christianity, and I'm talking about a life that's lived in connection to the Holy Spirit, empowers you and makes you ready for the battle. The Christian is, in fact, the only one who is completely adequate to deal with the problems of evil in the heavenly places. And so in this series, we're going to take a glimpse into the battle taking place all around us all the time in the spiritual realms. And again, I know there's questions that are going to come up, and so I'm going to try to answer some before you even ask them. And I know the first question is this, Pastor, why is life such a battle? Right? Why does life have to be such a battle, and, and when does it end? And the simple answer is this, life is such a battle because of the evil that's brought to us by the mastermind of evil, who's given several names in the Bible. He's known as Satan, which means adversary. He's known as a devil, which means accuser. Beelzebub, right? The the prince of demons. Now, why is life such a battle? Because Satan engages in a constant war against God and against his creation. He is a destroyer. He comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. See, Pastor, but when does it end? Is there like a certain level in Christianity that I reach where I'm exempt? I've done my time, right? Like, I hit 65 and I get to retire from the battle and get my free coffee at McDonald's, right? right? Is there that point? I want to say today there is no retirement from the battle in this life. We are in it for life, church, and 
some of the greatest warriors are actually the older saints, right? Their, their bodies may be getting weaker, but spiritually they're strong to fight the battle. And then the questions are, well, how do we defeat the devil? How do we build the kingdom of God with peace and righteousness? First of all, we have to understand today who our enemy is. Yes, the dark side of the heavenly realm belongs to Satan and to his evil spirits. But understand, Satan is not a counterpart to God. This is not yin and yang, like good somehow balancing out evil. God has no legitimate challenger. We sing it, right? You have no rival. You have no equal. Satan is a created being. He was created, we know, to minister to God in music. But he became so full of himself, so full of pride that he said, I'm going to be like a God. And he was expelled from heaven along with a third of the angels, now known as demons. But it's important for us to understand who he is. Understand this. Satan is a finite spirit being created by God. He is finite. That means he has limits. He's not all-knowing. He's not all-powerful. He's not present everywhere all the time. And so when you say Satan made me do it, I doubt it was him. Right? Maybe it was his influence. But understand this. Because God is sovereign, Satan can only act with limited In the book of Job, we see Satan asking God for permission to afflict Job. And and whenever Satan uh, attacks the believer, understand this, God always has something greater in mind. And so when the enemy attacks, we need to focus on the activity of God in the midst of the spiritual battle. Whenever you see the battle, you can know this, God is up to something, and the enemy is already defeated. Which speaks to the question I want to answer again before you even ask it then why does God allow Satan to even exist? Right? If he could just do away with him, why doesn't he do away with him? I mean, if he's the accuser and the destroyer, then why doesn't God just do away with him right now? Now, to answer that question, we need to go back to the book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, we're given the account of the fall of man, right? Adam and Eve are created by God to enjoy the creation of God. But when they disobeyed God, they chose something that God did not create. They chose sin. And as a result, evil entered into the world. And ever since that moment, again, we call it the fall, right? Ever since that moment, everything in nature, including mankind, no longer exists in its original condition free of corruption. Every person born since Adam and Eve now possesses a sin nature. Now, what is that? It's a bent towards sin. It's a bent towards selfishness. And it's that sin nature that makes us susceptible to the enemy's attacks, susceptible to Satan and in desperate need of God's redemption in our lives. The Old Testament after the fall is full of stories of violence, right? I remember sometimes reading it to my kids. I'm like, I don't even know if I can read this part, right? It's it's full of, of stories of violence. Right away, Cain kills his brother Abel, right? And God says his blood cries out from the ground. Satan, at that point, is the ruler of this world. He's called the prince of the power of the air. In Romans 12, too, the apostle Paul tells the Christians in Rome, he says, don't be conformed to the, to the pattern of this world. Jesus tells us in John 14, 30, that Satan is the ruler of this world. And so there will always be conflict in this world. But from the very beginning of time, God the Father knew he would send his son. And on the cross, Jesus.
won the victory over Satan. And, and one day he is coming back to bring Satan's final judgment. He's going to conquer every bit of evil that this world has ever known. But until that time, God is using Satan's destructive efforts for his purposes and for our welfare. So why does God allow, allow Satan to exist? Number one, to conform us to the image of God. To conform us to the image of God. That's the focus of God in our lives, to make us more like Jesus. And so he uses the spiritual battles that we're going through to cause us to seek him, to cause us to trust him, to cause us to, to follow him. Romans eight twenty eight, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. But you can't miss verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Understand God's ultimate good for us is that we would be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That's the greatest good for your life. And so God allows the battles that we face right now for our good. And so in the midst of the battles, it's so important, church, that we would lean into Jesus for his perspective, that we would receive all that he's trying to develop in us. He will also use the spiritual battles to teach you how to flex your spiritual muscles. Why does God allow Satan to exist? Number two, to reveal his character and his glory. When we say we want to bring God glory, it means we want to enhance his reputation in the eyes of others. Understand, we can never add to God's glory, but our obedience will always draw others to him. And so God uses the spiritual battles to display his power as he transforms us, as he changes our sinful nature. You see, following Jesus, truly following him, transforms you into something else, okay? And it gives us a testimony that glorifies God. God's character and his glory is also seen in greater ways as we contrast it to the works of the enemy. Even though Satan tried to diminish God's glory by nailing Jesus to the cross, God used the cross to redeem mankind. God raised his son from the dead so that one day every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen? To the glory of God the Father. And so why does God allow Satan to exist? The third reason is this, to accomplish his purposes. Because God is all-knowing. Understand this, nothing ever catches him by surprise. The devil can never throw a sucker punch. God always knows what he's doing, right? And so instead, God uses Satan to accomplish his purposes on earth. When Satan tries to bring harm, God's able to turn that thing and use it for our good. It was true in Job's life. It was true in Joseph's life. But I want to tell you, it's still true today. God remains actively involved in, in the business of redeeming the enemy's attempts to steal and kill and destroy. And you need to remember this today. That God limits Satan's freedom to act, which means that God allows Satan to do whatever he does. Which means God always has something greater in mind than just the struggle that you're walking through today. He always has something greater in mind. Sometimes, right, all we see is the struggle I'm going through right now. All we see is the struggle. All we see is the battle. But God is working behind the scenes to accomplish his purpose. Amen fourth reason that God allows Satan to exist is to advance his kingdom on earth, to advance God's kingdom on earth. 
God's kingdom is actually advanced through conflict and through testing to which we as God's people need to respond in prayer and obedience. There are many accounts of the kingdom of God advancing in the book of Acts. If you haven't read Acts recently, you need to dig up the book of Acts, right? So many accounts of the kingdom of God advancing, and it's through persecution. It's through even the death of Stephen, the first martyr. Jesus had commanded his disciples, he said, go and make disciples of every nation, right? Every nation. But their focus was still right here in Jerusalem. And so God allows an attack on the church, which resulted in Stephen stoning at the approval of the hands of a man by the name of Saul, right? And from that, the disciples were forced to move out of the city and take the gospel to others. And, and if you think about it, Stephen's death ultimately led to Saul's conversion. He was given the name Paul, right? He became the writer of 13 books of the New Testament. He was the greatest missionary of all time, and he advanced the kingdom of God to the ends of the known earth at that time. God is sovereign, listen to me, and he uses the enemy's attacks to advance his kingdom. And so you can look at the world around us right now, right? I know look at the world around us and be so discouraged. You can feel so overwhelmed because it feels sometimes like the enemy is winning. But just remember, God is going to use what we're walking through right now to advance his kingdom. This is a time, I believe it, when God is he's refining his church. And he's going to advance his kingdom through our prayers and through our obedience. And i got to tell you, I for one am excited to see what God's going to do. I'm not discouraged. I'm excited to see what God is going to do, because whatever the enemy attacks, God is working behind the scenes. Jesus told us that life's going to be a battle. You know, we shouldn't be surprised, right? But he also told us this, we're going to emerge in victory. John 13, 33. Jesus says this, he said, I've said these things to you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you will have tribulation." He doesn't say you might. He says, what, you you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Jesus' prayer to the Father in John 17, 13, he says, But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your words, and the world has hated them, because they are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. Verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I sent them into the world. We are sent into the world, church. We're sent by Jesus into a spiritual battle. Now, our main text today is in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I'll give you a moment to turn there. When you got it, say God. chapter 10. Praise God. I've got to begin reading there in verse 1. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing 
against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war against the flesh. Underline those words in your Bible. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. We take every thought captive to obey Christ. I want you to take note of the the first phrase there in verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. If you have the NIV, it says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. What he's saying is that we as Christians are, are to be different. We're a part of the world, but we live by an entirely different ethic. We do not act like other people. We don't operate from the same motives. We don't even gauge success the same way the world gauges success. There's something that's quite different about us. If you try to judge us on the same basis you judge others, you're going to be very far off and you'll miss the point entirely. Now, in these verses, we find the basic conflict that causes tension in Christians' life. Though we live in the world, though we're a part of this society and and we look like everyone else, We ought to engage with the problems of life with a different goal. Again, we're not carrying on a worldly war, but we're carrying on a spiritual war. And I think one of the things that has robbed the church of its power, especially in recent days, is that the church has begun to, to wage war according to the flesh. The world has begun to tell the church, here's what you need to do, and here's what's important, and here's what you need to say. And the church in America, sadly, has begun to sound just like the rest of the world. But but hear me, church, we have a completely different calling. Because we're not carrying on a worldly war, but we're carrying on a spiritual war. And as we grow under the principles of Christ and the Holy Spirit, we're going to begin to feel a little alienated from the world. That's only right. At the same time, we feel alienated, we can be tempted to withdraw to some separate society. We're going to create a, a parallel world over here, okay? But note carefully that, that the answer to all of this is not disengagement. He says we walk in the flesh. We don't run away from the world. Now, monastic life has appealed to many through the centuries. It often appeals to me. It sounds good, right? We just get away in silence by myself, right? History is full of men and women who've retreated to quiet places and and tried to shut themselves out from life. And there are many who try to do that today. But as the culture grows hostile, many Christians have this this attitude. We got to retreat, right? We got to retreat. We've attempted at times to create just like this Christian safe house and atmosphere which is thoroughly Christian from the womb to the tomb, and we're not going to let any secular forces come in, and we seek to isolate and insulate as much as possible from the world. And this is basically unbiblical because it's contrary to the clear word of the apostle who says, we Christians, we live in the midst of this world. Jesus put it this way, behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, right? And he says, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Now, you read that statement, and it leads you to one of two conclusions about Jesus. Either he is completely crazy for sending us out there, right? Or he knows something about the power of God that we have yet to understand. Paul says, though we live in the world, 
we don't run away from society. And at the same time, we don't use human plans and methods to win our battles. We, we need to be distinct. But how so? Stay with me. Because here's the reality. We can oppose the right enemy, but if we do it with the wrong weapons, we're not going to be successful. If, if we take up the weapons that are like those used by people who are not full of God's Holy Spirit, then the results are going to be limited. How do ordinary people try to change evil to good? Well, the weapons of our world is power politics, right? Action coalitions. We're going to organize. We're going to demonstrate. We're going to boycott. We're going to picket. More laws. More education. More violence, even. And, and sometimes some of those things are a part of the solution. Some of them are part of the solution, maybe. Any non-Christian who's confronted with the problems of our society is trying to find a solution. They're going to use at least something on that list. This is the way of the world. However, their solutions fail because they're essentially one-dimensional. They only deal with the physical realm, right? The observable world. They're unwilling or unable to address the spiritual issues. Understand poverty is not simply an economic issue. We could take and throw more money at it, right? That's, that's one-dimensional, right? There, there are opportunity issues. There are relationship issues. There are marriage issues. There are sin issues, right, that need to be addressed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? We, we talk about racism, right? Recognizing rights and creating new laws. Again, it can be so one-dimensional. It does nothing for the surrounding problems of misconceptions and lies and prejudices. Those things do nothing to deal with the heart the way that we know that the gospel can. And, and so the Bible gives us as believers, man, a new point of view. We're, we're, we're seeing, we're able to see beyond the obvious into the heavenly places. In 2 Corinthians 4.18, we're told... We look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are, are transient. He's saying these things that we can see, they're not lasting, but the things that are unseen are eternal. There is an added dimension that the Christian ought to bring to the discussion. Because the weapons that he or she uses are not just the weapons of this world. The second statement made in our text about our weapons is that they have divine power. They have divine power. What does that mean? It means they work. It means they work. It means they, they destroy strongholds. They, they overthrow entrenched evil. They set people free. This is what they're for. And, and if they don't do these things, they're worthless. Right? They're no better than any other program that we can introduce. Now, what are these weapons? If they're not normal human plans, what are they? If they don't include these approaches that are so common today in our world, then what are they? Paul doesn't list them here, but the Bible is clear about these weapons in the Christian's arsenal that provide for the defeat of the evil one. And if you face any spiritual battle with these weapons, you will be victorious, right? You'll find not only personal satisfaction, but you're going to become a person who influences this world for Jesus Christ. The first weapon is this. It's truth. The first weapon is truth. To engage effectively in the spiritual battle, we must choose to live in truth. John 8, 31, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, he said, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If you're really my disciples, if you're really following me, you're going to abide in the truth, and that truth is going to have an effect on your life. 
Understand this. Truth is the chief weapon of the believer. It's the chief weapon of the believer. And, and truth is not just knowledge or education. Education is like the favorite weapon of those attacking the problems of our time. Let me just give them another degree. I'm going to figure this all out, right? This is the most effective way to solve our problems. Listen, obtaining knowledge of reality is a very important thing in solving problems. It's a, it's a powerful weapon. However, we see the inadequacy of education when we see that knowing the difference between right and wrong does not guarantee a person will choose right over wrong, right? And so in the spiritual battle, we need to be committed to truth. Christianity, our, our, our faith, ought to introduce truth into any situation. And we lose our power, we lose our effectiveness when we water down the truth. When we say to that individual that's struggling with sexual identity, well, that's okay, God will accept you however you want to identify. Listen, we're not speaking truth. And therefore, it doesn't lead to freedom. And so the most loving thing that you can do is speak truth because God's truth reveals reality. It reveals reality. It will reorder someone's world if you speak it. Where the devil brings chaos, truth reorders someone's world according to the word of God with God at the very center. It, it defines the purpose for our existence, again, to glorify God. It tells us their facts about our state of being, and it teaches us how to find our way back to our Creator. It's not only the Christian's business to know truth, though. He must demonstrate truth. And here's the struggle. Christians are too often labeled as hypocrites. And if we're honest, sometimes rightly so. Because sometimes we profess more truth than we actually live out. And we just excuse away our failures. Well, that's just who I am. One writer describes much of, much of Christianity like this. He says, it's fraudulent pieties. But Christians, above all else, ought to be characterized by openness and honesty. Listen, our world is full of image makers and image breakers, right? Full of marketers. Through advertisement, through social media, we're sold everything from a cup of coffee to a president. We can never be sure if someone that's speaking to us is just giving us a line or if they generally believe what they actually say. But, but what a refreshing experience to meet a person or a group that is authentically transparent and open. That is what every Christian and every church ought to be. If you really think about it, no Christian actually has a right to a private life. Our lives are to be lived second weapon is love. Love. What an overused word, right? You say, I love my spouse, and I love ice cream, right? <laughs> All different feelings. But understand this, biblical love is love without self-interest. It's described in great detail in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, right? Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it's not rude, it's not self-seeking is not easily angered. It keeps no rep record of wrongs. Let me say that again. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with what? It rejoices with the truth. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. And it always perseveres. The Bible says, if you cannot love other people in that way, then you're not really a Christian, no matter what creed you subscribe to. This is what it's about. First John 4, 8, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. 
no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. God says we, we must love others without reference to the color of their skin or their abilities or their attractiveness or their lack of, right? Their similarity to ourselves. We, we got to love them regardless. And, and godly love, let me say this, it is a powerful weapon in the spiritual battle because it irresistibly attracts people to God. It's also a powerful change agent that transforms people that are caught in the web of sin and it turns them into saints who honor God. The third weapon is righteousness. I've got to say this, we will not win any ground for Jesus Christ in the spiritual battles without a life that is committed to obedience to both love and truth. In Ephesians 4.1, Paul says, live a life worthy of the calling that you receive. Live a life that's worthy of the calling that you've received. Understand, when Christ came into your life, a new life came with him. And you, you cannot stay as you are, excusing your bad behavior to, well, that was my parents or my personality or my peers, always excusing that. No, scripture says we've got to stop lying. You're lying, put that off. Stop stealing. Stop the immorality. Stop the harshness toward one another. Uh, stop the unforgiveness and, and the jealousy and, and, and the petty insistence on always God being fair for you. We replace those common traits with the character of Jesus who is tenderhearted. He's accepting. He's loving. He's forgiving. Listen, if, if the focus of your righteousness is only around these choices not to engage in certain social issues. Well, I, I don't smoke, and I don't drink, and I don't gamble, I don't read in our movies. If that's it, then you're a sorry example of a Christian, because our righteousness does not ignore some of those things. Some of those things are good choices, okay? But it goes much deeper to the issues of selfishness and greed and prejudice. It deals with the heart. Because the Spirit of God is in us, there should be a quality cannot be explained except by the fact that God is at work in the heart. The fourth weapon, the last weapon is this, it's the prayer of faith. We say today, all people pray. And as long as there are tests in school, there will be prayer in schools, right? All people pray, but spirit-filled people pray in faith. Spirit-filled people pray, they pray differently. They pray in faith. Understand, prayer is a mysterious way to become an agent of God in the world of evil and suffering. James 5.16 reminds us, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and it's effective. Understand this, faith is reliance on the direct activity of God, and prayer is the request for that activity. Let me say that again. Faith is a reliance on the direct activity of God, and prayer is the request for that activity. Faith is the expectation that God is going to do it, right? What a mighty weapon is put in our hands when we pray. And it ought not to be a last resort, right? Some kind of vague hope, Hail Mary at the end, right? But we ought to confidently ask God to work in and through us to do His will. These are the powerful weapons at our disposal for spiritual warfare. Truth, love, righteousness, and the prayer of faith. Would you stand with me today? I want to challenge you today. We're going to continue to 
talk about the spiritual realm. We're going to talk some over the next few weeks about the schemes of the enemy, the way that he tries to work in our lives, because when we understand how he tries to work, we can we can counter those things. But let me just say this. Maybe you've heard of spiritual warfare before, and it's been a strange and a far-out thing for you. You think of it as some secret formula in your life. But listen, without truth and love and righteousness and the prayer of faith, we're ineffective. And so I want to challenge you to actually accept the declaration that these weapons have divine power to demolish strongholds. With them, the Bible says that we're going to demolish arguments, right? Every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of Christ. But understand this, they all work together. You can't isolate one from the other. They're all necessary. You can't live in truth and communicate truth without love. You can't say a prayer of faith apart from a life of righteousness. Because remember, it's the prayer of the righteous man, right, that availeth much. Listen, my issue with so much of the talk on spiritual warfare is that it focuses on extra-biblical things. And it gets really weird, right? But I, I just can't see it as being that difficult from Scripture. So many seem to know this secret hidden weapon of spiritual warfare, but they lack the true weapons. The weapons of our warfare are simple, the truth, love, righteousness, and prayer. And when we begin to focus on these weapons, we will be a tremendously powerful force for the kingdom of God. So today we've only touched on the surface. Again, in the weeks to come, we're going to talk more about the enemy and his schemes. But if we're going to engage, church, if we're really going to engage in the spiritual battle, taking place in the heavenly realms around us. We need to commit to live in the weapons he's given to us. We need to commit to living in truth, not compromising it. Not setting it aside. Listen, as soon as you, you set aside truth, you, you've already lost. We need to commit to, to living in love. We need to commit to a life of, of obedience. Say, God, whatever you call me to do, I'm going to respond in obedience. We need to live a life full of faith-filled prayer for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. We're going to close with a song today. It's a prayer that simply says, consecrate us. Consecrate us. Church, if we're going to engage in the battle that's before us, we need to pray that God would do a work in us first. Amen. That he would consecrate us, that he would refine us, that he would set us apart, that we would look different. Great tragedy is so often we don't look different because we're not set apart for him. And so I want to take some time right now with heads bowed around this room. Think about these things. Which do you struggle with the most? Be honest. And ask the Holy Spirit to empower you to fight the battle before you in the heavenly places. Jesus' prayer was, Father, would you sanctify sanctify us in the truth. May we be people of love.